Hello, and welcome back to the Outdoor Minimalist Podcast. I'm your host, Meg Carney, and I'm an outdoor and environmental writer and author of the book, Outdoor Minimalist, Wasteless Hiking, Camping, and Backpacking. The Outdoor Minimalist Podcast has the goal to give listeners actionable ways to waste less hiking, camping, backpacking, and more during every step of their process. Your impact outdoors starts long before you hit the trail and goes beyond leave no trace ethics. You'll learn how to identify sustainable outdoor brands, how to ask hard questions regarding sustainability, and begin to shift and evolve your mindset to integrate minimalism into all of your outdoor pursuits. For the final episode of this year, episode 118, we've picked out our top ranking episodes of 2023 to recap and return to some of our listeners' favorite conversations. We release a new episode every single Monday, so there are so many other amazing episodes available beyond these five. But if this is your first time listening, honestly, this is an excellent place to start because you get a taste of the best of the best. Looking back on 2023, I first of all want to thank all of our listeners for making this our best year yet. We've grown so much over this past year, and I'm really excited to see what 2024 has in store for us. I also want to thank our podcast sponsors, Diorite Gear and Lava Linens, for all of their support in making this production a possibility. One big announcement for 2024 is the release of the 10-part podcast series titled Forever Chemicals. If you are a fan of episode 111 of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, phasing out PFAS in outdoor equipment, then you'll want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter at theoutdoorminimalist.com to stay updated on release dates and trailers for the Forever Chemicals limited series. If you want to support our work and the upcoming Forever Chemicals series, please consider donating to our GoFundMe. You can find the link to that in our show notes. And if you can't support us monetarily, I would love if you could take a moment and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews are a free way to support the show and to help new listeners find content that aligns with their interests and values. Adventuring plans on your calendar? Remember to grab your Lava Linens travel towel on your way out the door. Founded by a mother-daughter team, Lava Linens crafts durable, luxurious travel towels as a more sustainable and better performing alternative to microfiber and cotton towels. Powered by flax, hemp, and tensile, they're designed to be by your side for years to come. Use the code OUTDOORMINIMALIST for 15% off your next order. Without further ado, here are the top five episodes of 2023 based on listener analytics. Number one. Episode 111, Phasing Out PFAS in Outdoor Equipment with Fjallraven. One thing that I could be wrong about this, but you have used PFAS in the past in some of your products. And so kind of the theme of today's episode is the process you guys have been going through in order to phase those things out and how you're exactly changing it to be PFAS free. So I think kind of like phasing into that conversation, we can start by First, explaining to the audience if they don't know what PFAS are and why so many companies in the outdoor industry are beginning to phase them out if they have used them before. PFAS or, or PFCs, they're in essence a, what we call a forever chemical, and they make quite a few things easier. When it rains, it makes, a, makes a, the rain kind of bubble up and zip off, you know, zip off your garments, and so it keeps you dry, feeling dry. It is used to make something more durable. 
It is used to uh, make something uh, smoother and go faster, even in production. So it's it's used in a lot of things to for for durable and and water repellents, but not not limited to water repellents. But it's also dirt repellent. And these chemicals are input in many different in so many different areas, not just in in apparel or in production, but it it is it is everywhere. And the more we understand, the more we understand that it's in so many places. And I think that's the biggest challenge that we all face. Yeah, and to connect your question, I mean, we have always been, or for a very long time, looking into all kind of chemicals you add to product for performance has been something we have evaluated and tried to phase out because we believe to do a really durable product, it should not be based on any chemicals or treatments that you actually wash out or so sun protection last the long lifetime of the garment exactly because what are you really selling i mean if you're just selling the first 10 washes that's not really it doesn't really match with what we're trying to do as a brand Mm. or if you're selling something that doesn't really deliver for the next 10 years again it's what are we doing what are we selling yeah and also when it comes to hand feel etc we want the natural hand feel rather than an artificial hand feel made by chemical applied so this was actually something that we found out, and based on that strategy, we also saw a multitude of different chemicals at the same time. But PFAS was, of course, the, was, the major, most obvious thing that we need to really focus on. Yeah, and it was one of the things that was a that was a big aha moment, and that moment actually <laughs> had us questioning all the other chemicals. You know, everything else kind of came second, and when we really understood, and Stefan Posner was kind enough to explain to us what is the effect of PFAS in nature to our water shelters, to waterborne organisms, and thus to animals. When he explained that to us, we were, both Martin and I, were quite clear on what the decision that we needed to make, even at that period. And that was so long ago. I I can barely remember, but it was a long time ago. And that was kind of the start of that journey of like, aha, if that's what this simple product is, we need to look into everything else that we're doing to understand more about that so we are making the right choices and those choices became that we ended up removing a lot of that because we realized this is not what makes great outdoor gear this is not what makes a great outdoor experience number two episode 87 using minimalism to reduce stress featuring becca ploner health and life coach and host of the wild woman podcast I want to talk a little bit about how you can apply minimalism to relationships and your personal time and emotional energy. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) where to start? Um, A lot to unpack there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So how to apply it to your, your time, I guess, first. I mean, by having less stuff from the stuff aspect or having less of it, you're going to spend less time like organizing and cleaning and doing all that stuff, which like in itself is going to give you more time to do the things that you want to do. And kind of on a similar like topic of what we were just talking about, like when you practice something, you're going to get better at it. So when we're practicing saying no to ourselves, (laughs) like, no, I can't have 30 different striped t-shirts. Like (laughs) I need to just have one, maybe two, if I really like striped shirts, (laughs) like I'm going to be better at saying no to things that I don't want to do and things that I do want to do. I'm also going to learn how to identify what I want. 
which I think is an underestimated skill. A lot of people, especially women, are taught that we're like, what we want doesn't matter. It's like, we are the caregiver. It's what everyone else wants. So I think this journey has also helped me identify like, oh, this is like the style that I like, or this is what I want to come present as, or this, these are the things that I want to do. These are the types of people that I want to hang out with, or this is how I want to feel, especially getting rid of any clothes. Clothes obviously has a huge impact for me. (laughs) Talked about it a lot, but especially getting rid of clothes that like don't feel comfortable to me or are itchy, don't make me feel self-confident with how I look. That in itself changes so much because if you feel confident in how you look because of what you're wearing then you're going to present as more confident as well and I feel like that also makes you more approachable and makes other people like want to spend more time with you and stuff too so how can that how can being minimalist affect your relationships I feel like it can make you more confident and if you're more confident then you're gonna like reach out to people more and you're gonna like maybe not read into things as much (laughs) And you're just going to be like more set in like who you are and what you want. And I think that that helps a lot with relationships, kind of rambling. (laughs) It makes a lot of sense. What you're saying makes sense because it is all related and it's speaking to a lot of the things that you have already kind of mentioned, kind of like the progression and how it can kind of propel you to understand yourself at that deeper level. And then, like you said, give you the confidence to say no or set boundaries in other situations. Do you find that living the more intentional minimalist lifestyle, do you find it difficult in any scenarios or like overwhelming sometimes? I think at first, like, yeah, definitely. Anything new, it's going to be a little overwhelming. (laughs) And it is hard to say no. It's still hard, even though I feel like I say no all the freaking time. (laughs) And with this lifestyle, you have to say no probably more than the average person. (laughs) But I really like it comes back to like, I ask myself, does this align with my values all the time? Like pretty much every decision I make, I'm like, does this align with my values? Does this go with how I want to feel today? Am I making a decision that is helping me in some way? And like, sometimes I'm like, Does it feel good in the moment? Okay, I'm going to do it. (laughs) Sometimes that's the goal of the day. (laughs) Yeah, so sometimes it's hard, but overall, I feel like I really believe in it. And so I feel like it it comes pretty easily, not like easily in not a lazy way, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Number three, episode 98, How Not to Die in the Wilderness, featuring Andrea Lankford, author of Ranger Confidential and Trail of the Lost. What would you say are like some of the biggest hazards to visitors when they are entering national parks or any wilderness area in particular? You know, one of the biggest hazards is sometimes the softest things and it's water in its various forms. Raging river, an icy slope, a snowstorm with wind that causes hypothermia. So water is a big problem. Not drinking enough water, 
So you're dehydrated and at the Grand Canyon, you could even drink too much water so that you have trouble with hyponatremia, which is low blood sodium because you're diluted yourself and your body can't function right. After water, it's probably the hard stuff, you know, the cliffs and falling and rocks falling and trees falling and hitting you. Then you do have some animal hazards. They're not real high on the list, but they exist. And then you have human hazards where there are people with ill intent out in the wilderness taking advantage of people. Yeah, so if we are to look at kind of like some of the natural hazards that you mentioned before, how do you think people can better prepare themselves to avoid accidents or things like dehydration and like heat stroke? Yeah, you know, every environment comes with its own unique challenges. Like the challenges at the Grand Canyon in the summer are going to be different than on Mount Lassen in the winter, for example. So one thing I like to say is for people to have an expedition mindset. And so when you're going to go on a hike, even just with your family, what could go wrong and have a safety plan for that. Check what the weather is to make sure you're carrying all the proper gear that you would need for those weather conditions. Another way to have the expedition mindset is to think about the survival rule of threes. So you can survive three weeks without food, three days without water, and in a hazard weather conditions, only three hours without shelter. So food, water, and shelter is something you should have with you. And that would help you for if you got lost, for example, or hurt and you broke your leg and you need to wait for somebody to rescue you. If you have food, water, and shelter, you're going to live longer until a ranger, like what I used to be, can come and rescue you. So just think of that expedition mindset, look at your unique environment that you're visiting and what do you need to carry with you so that you have food, water, and shelter. Yeah, I love that expedition mindset. It's easy to remember too. Mm -hmm. But so on kind of like a different path, more related to the Trail of the Lost story, when I talk to a lot of women in particular, I do a lot of solo adventures. A lot of times women will be like, I don't know why you are doing that. Isn't it dangerous? Aren't you scared? And a lot of times they'll say the thing I fear the most when I go into the wilderness is not necessarily like the natural hazards or the animals or anything. It's particularly other people, but specifically men. And so in those instances, if people are entering a wild landscape alone or in a small group, especially if you're a woman, do you have any like advice to stay safe with human encounters? Yes, I do. I am a solo hiker and backpacker and I'm a diehard solo hiker and backpacker. I love doing it alone. I love doing it with other women. I love doing it with my husband and other men, but I'm not going to give up hiking alone. And I don't think other women should. But there is a risk. Women are a higher risk of sexual violence, sexual motivated violence than men are. So some of the strategies I use, you know, I'm a former law enforcement and a nurse, so I kind of give off a, you know, I'm not prey attitude. So even if you have to fake it, try to put that costume on when you're out hiking. Another is, you know, I'm nice, but I'm not friendly. I'm not out there to get a date. I'm a meet a guy who's very curious where I'm going and where I'm backpacking. And I'll be friendly, but somewhat aloof and in the conversation quickly. And I don't tell him where I'm hiking or where I'm going. So, and some of the men, I know that's hard for them because they're just, they're actually nice. Most of the men you meet out there are totally nice and they would totally help you if you were in trouble. But you don't know that when you meet them. And some of the most dangerous guys can be the most charming. So put on an attitude. I'm not prey. I'm not here to go out on a date. Hi, bye. You know, have a nice trip. And I think that can help discourage a potential human predator, you know, from initiating further contact with you. 
But men get in trouble in the wilderness as well. Men have been victims of violence in the wilderness as well, especially the Appalachian Trail, for example, of through hikers, I believe it's five men have been murdered and five women. Uh, there are more men on the trail than women, but this is good advice for men as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so, okay, here's what happens. There's something called the fear gender paradox where women are more afraid of going out in the woods, but a male, a solo male is more likely to not survive a perilous encounter than a solo female is. So it's probably because women, we have this angst. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, something bad's going to happen. And so we maybe go into it with a more cautious or expedition mindset where the male thinks he's fine, he can heal it. And so that puts him more at risk of trouble. So this advice goes for men as well. And I, also one thing I say to men, if you're meeting a woman on the trail and she acts a little aloof, don't take it personal. She's just trying to be safe. And I know you want her to be safe. So mm -hmm. that's one thing I like to say about that. Number four, episode 99, How Sustainable is Van Life? Featuring Dave Santillo, environmental scientist and creator of TerraTrek. And you mentioned kind of some of the downsides and a lot of them yeah. were related to logistics. And yeah. like in all of my times living in different vehicles, logistics were the biggest headache that, mm -hmm. I mean, like oh, for sure. so many wonderful experiences that you do have, but then mm -hmm. like general life and like chores becomes very, very hard. So what would be some of the downsides? And then also like in the realm of downsides, if you could talk a little bit more about like where your environmental impact is higher in a vehicle. Yeah, so I'll address the downsides as a way of getting into the environmental impacts. You know, there's obvious when you drive a van and you live in a van, you've got to drive more than if you live in one spot. And that means burning fossil fuel and, and all that goes with that. You know, you're, you're impacting the atmosphere and also fuel ain't cheap. It's impacting your wallet. And yeah, with the logistically challenging, you know, you're driving to find showers, even if you only take one once every two or three days. You know, to use a bathroom, drive from spot to spot, maybe you have to lean on friends to, to let your driveway surf. It feels at times like you're on the fringes of society. And I come across a lot of people who talk about places they've done stealth camping, you know, overnight parking or camping where it's not allowed. And again, I'll get into that a little later, but I don't know many people who that sneaking around doesn't wear on them after a while. You know, there's this thing called the dreaded knock. I don't know if you ever had that when the police knock on your van at some point in the night and tell you to move. <laughs> or worse, when somebody from the public takes it into their own hands. And, you know, our society seems a little edgier these days. So like I said, logistically challenging and stressful. And if you're living in a van full time, you end up using a vehicle that gets pretty poor gas mileage for errands and little stuff that would have a way smaller footprint in gas and materials if it were a small car. So, yeah, and, you know, unfortunately, I've also seen where van life can lead people to cut corners you know, maybe throw up more than they would because you don't have the space to recycle. And, you know, there's more packaging per unit of food that you consume in a van because it's hard to buy in bulk because there's so little space to store food, you know. And one last thing, maybe it's not really an environmental issue, but if you wander widely and for an extended period of time, you know, most everybody starts to long for a sense of community and close connections, but I mostly stick to the environmental issues here. And it'd say it's probably a good thing that man life isn't for everyone. And so I said that would lead me to the environmental impacts of full-time van or RV travel. Again, I want to group this all together. And kind of one of my themes, it's going to vary by how you use the van and how conscientious of your footprint you are for sure. 
you know, so for some people who are listening, you know, they're going to identify with, well, my impact there is pretty small. And some people are going to have to look at themselves in the mirror and say, yeah, okay, I'm pretty bad on that one. Uh, but let's say you're a van lifer who's driving an old van, poor gas mileage, using a small propane stove, a simple build out in a warm climate. Maybe you're parking near the beach. If you're lucky to know someone near the beach who's going to let you driveway surf. And you either, you know, you're playing on the beach or biking to work. Compare that to that van lifer I mentioned in the newer van that gets better, but still crummy gas mileage. Maybe they're an influencer. Maybe they're a professional photographer or a recent retiree. They have a new van. Or maybe you're driving a lot for work and changing locations every few days or less. They're eating food, you know, packaging or shipped from across the globe. And that van is filled with high-end materials and finishings. The footprint of those two is pretty different, you know. So listing out some of the major impacts of van life to set a stage for maybe considering how we could reduce that input. First, before you even get to the impacts of living or traveling in that van, let's acknowledge that a lot of resources were used for the vehicle itself. And there's an environmental impact that goes along with extraction of raw materials and energy that's needed to build it. You might hear someone claim that an older van has a lower cost because it already exists. But when you factor in parts replacement, upkeep, you know, the fact that older vans get slightly less gas mileage, a van on the road is a van on the road, and there's a host of environmental impacts associated with getting it there. And I mentioned the key one is fossil fuel usage and everything that goes with that. It seems like the industry is in the early stages of electrical vans, but they're not there yet. And there's significant environmental impacts associated with the building and battery aspect of electrical vehicles too, you know. At least right now, they're still limited by battery ranges, weight of the vehicle, and so on. So they don't have it figured out yet. But fact is, if you live in a vehicle, you probably drive more than you would if you lived in one spot. And fossil fuel use is a big one, and that is hard to mitigate. I looked up some figures here. According to the U.S. EPA, typical car gets about 22 miles per gallon and is driven about 11,500 miles a year. That car emits 4.6 metric tons of CO2. And you can adjust up or down based on your mileage per gallon and usage. But if you consider that the average van gets about 15 miles per gallon, you're emitting another one to two metric tons for every 11,500 miles you drive. So there's that. And yet on top of that, a lot of vans use propane as a fuel for cooking or heating. And even if you have solar panels, I see a lot of you know references and blogs and stuff to solar panels as a way to feel good or to do something good. But you can't ignore the hidden environmental costs of renewable energy. You know, whether it's mining of the lithium in the batteries or other materials or probably fossil fuel use that went into making the panels and the batteries and the fossil fuel used in building solar and wind energy facilities. It's not clear cut and easy, you know, not at all. So, and I mentioned food, obviously you can't grow your own food in a van, which has a lower impact if you grow your own food than that, which kind of goes into mass produced food that you buy at a store. And also you have to shop more often because you really can't store a lot. A big one is water, both in the amount used and how you get rid of wastewater. As far as intake, here's where the idea of minimalism comes in. You're probably going to use less than you would if you went home. It's a bit easier to use less in van because you can't really carry all that much. And filling up is one more detail. So you tend to treat water like gold. I do anyways. If you live in a small camper, you're definitely using and wasting less water than a typical home-based American and if you shower at all, it's definitely not a high volume flow of water there. But still, if you're separating your general use water and your drinking water, like I do, if you're using bottled water to plastic to drink instead of refilling it, then you're definitely adding to the plastics problem also. 
And then there's wastewater I mentioned. I have definitely seen and become aware of kind of one of the dirty secrets of camping in general and van life. You know, there's an awful lot of people putting their gray water up places they shouldn't. Nothing good that comes out of that. So related to that, you have your impacts related to garbage and waste. And like I said, you don't have a lot of storage space in a van. You can't buy stuff in bulk. And there tends to be a larger ratio of food to packaging in smaller items. So you can actually generate a lot of garbage in a van. You don't have the space to sort and keep recycling. So people tend to toss a lot of stuff out. And from what I've seen on the road, not many people are recycling in camper life or in van life, you know. Yeah, so you add all these together and you have the potential for a fairly significant environmental impact. Number five, episode 101, How Sustainable and Ethical is Wool? Featuring Mike Summerby. If we're looking at wool production in general, and it's okay if you don't like have a lot of information on the broad scope of like the global wool production, but Mm -hmm. I feel like of anyone you might, do you think that wool as a fabric has a more positive or negative environmental impact? I think on the aggregate, it's, it's a hard question to answer because there's a lot of players involved on the global scale. American wool already represents a very small sliver of the general wool production in the world in totality. But, you know, our operation is a sliver of that small sliver. It's kind of like anything else, right? So cotton is a 100% organic material. You grow it from the soil. But if you have, you know, whole swaths of towns, if not counties that are dedicated to a monoculture, you're going to have some problems, right? Even if you're using the most organic non-GMO seeds ever and you're planting it seed by seed by seed, but you take up 80% of a county in Georgia with cotton, I mean, bees are certainly going to suffer, which is going to make birds suffer, which is going to make, you know, everything is going to cascade from that monoculture nature of how it is produced. So the really hard thing for me is that you can find a downside of just about any single textile that is organically derived, that is to say, not synthetic. It's just trying to encourage not only the consumer to understand what those negative downsides are, but also just to value them. You know, we really shouldn't be supporting GMO, massive monoculture operations, and we shouldn't be supporting wool producers that are just getting their fleece from you know, God knows where across multiple continents blended into one. We don't know how those animals are treated. We don't know how those human beings that raise the animals are treated. It's hard work and it's not always the most desirable work. And so, you know, I don't, I can't speak for another country like perhaps Turkey or Uruguay or China or, or even Australia. I don't know what it's like to be a wool producer there, or at least to be a grunt within a wool producing operation. And again, I don't know what those people do to the animals. I can certainly say that it's unique to find an operation that is stewarding the land actively in the way that we do. I mean, it's a family operation. We can't just pack up and find another plot of land. We need this piece of land to keep producing for generations so that the helis can feel comfortable passing it down generation to generation. It doesn't just become a massive tax burden because you're just sitting on a giant piece of dead land. And I mean, just for the sake of the beauty of the ecology as well, I mean, Montana is not very hard on the eyes and anyone that grows up here, certainly it's just in your blood to appreciate that. But 
You know, it's it's a hard question to ask or to answer rather. I, I think that there's on the aggregate, the wool industry certainly has its problems. It definitely can, you know, depending on where it's dyed, for example, if it's dyed in a country that doesn't have regulations about dumping the wastewater into a river. I mean, that's a huge problem. If it's cut and sewn in a country that doesn't value human rights and there's someone to replace you at the manufacturing stage every single day, that's also a problem. If the sheep are, you know, there was a video that came out of a PETA video from a sheep ranching operation in South America that was actually headed up by Patagonia. And I think Patagonia has since severed ties with this operation, but it just goes to show that even the best, you know, companies that really put their money where their mouth is can make mistakes with this textile. I mean, the sheep were treated totally inhumanely. It's actually really kind of disturbing to see some of the practices that were employed in, in raising those sheep. You know, some of them may have never even seen the light of day and just kind of lived in their own filth doing whatever until the day that they were killed for meat and then had, you know, shorn. I don't, I mean, it's just, it was, it was awful. That's why raising sheep in a country or a culture that does value things like workers' rights, human rights, animal rights, environmental rights. And this isn't necessarily true across the United States. I'm not saying the United States is the perfect picture of, of health in every single one of those categories, but it's certainly a leg up from some of the more traditional international textile manufacturing hubs of the world. And so we have to put emphasis on consumer understanding those differences, but also caring about those differences because ultimately the market is going to go where the consumer dollar is. It's, it's the truth. If consumers all started buying electric cars tomorrow and every single person replaced their car with an electric car tomorrow, there probably would be a massive drop in prospective new gas drilling, right? It just would be automatic. It just would, wouldn't make sense anymore. So companies that would see that their consumers really care about all of those stages of the operation in the context of wool are going to start doing things differently. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, outdoor minimalists. We explore a lot of topics ranging from the sustainability of wool or even the amount of stress that can be lifted by integrating minimalism into more aspects of our lives. But there's one topic request that has surpassed them all, and that is PFAS or PFCs. You may be familiar with this term if you tuned into episode 111 of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, where we heard from Donna Bruns and Martine Axelhead from Fjallraven, but that was only one hour long episode and that was only one company. And it still left me wondering, how is the outdoor industry as a whole tackling this problem? That's why our team set out to develop a new 10 part series titled Forever Chemicals. We set out to answer that question and many, many more. To do this, I sat down with countless experts from brands like Fjallraven and Outdoor Research, along with scientists, lawyers, and lawmakers that all have a stake in how PFAS is used and how it's now being eliminated. Over the course of 10 episodes, we investigate the origins, rise, and now phase out of the forever chemicals called PFAS, previously known as PFCs. With more companies beginning to understand the dangers of these commonly used chemicals, they're being phased out to keep up with new laws and to ensure company ethos align with their production. However, many of us as consumers may not know what they are or why we should even care about them. That's where we come in. 
We're here to be a direct line to all the people in and outside of the outdoor industry and to help everyone understand what PFAS are and why we should stop using them. So if you're wondering how we can make a difference in the fight against PFAS pollution and how we can keep the health of our planet and our communities on the forefront of product producers' minds, tune in to Forever Chemicals, coming March 2024. This production chooses to be an independent podcast to ensure that our message is unbiased and that we only present facts. While we're open to sponsorships when available, it's important that our values align and there are no expectations to conceal any information about their practices or to ask us to be less transparent. That's why we're asking you, our listeners, to consider donating to our GoFundMe to help fund this podcast series. Your donations will go towards general production efforts, time spent on interviews and research, audio editing and engineering, marketing campaigns, and public relations. As the host and creator of this show and Blackfooted Ferret Productions, it is my goal and mission to provide free and accessible information for all. If you're interested in donating, follow the link in the show notes. And thank you all for making this show a possibility. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, let me know. Leave a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at outdoor.minimalist.book, on YouTube, or subscribe to our weekly newsletter at theoutdoorminimalist.com. For even more updates, other educational resources, and to help build an outdoor community with the shared goal to create a better outdoor space as we recreate.